Okay, welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode, I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in elite sport, helping athletes maximize their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. In this episode, I'm catching up with Karen Williams, Head of Performance Programs with British Gymnastics. Karen, welcome. You have the marvellous privilege of being the inaugural guest on the podcast. I'm really grateful for you to take taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, I know you're pretty busy at the moment now that the UK is heading into lockdown number two. So I'll start by asking, where are you talking to us today? Where are you, where are you today? So I was going to be at the gym, um, but as you say, the lockdown has meant that actually the athletes we have have dispensation to continue to train. So we've had a big influx uh, in the last two days of athletes coming in and, and making use of the space. So I've decided to stay at home today, get some peace and quiet um, and yeah, spend some time chatting to you. Great. So the gym, where, where, where is the gym that you would normally be based at? So we're based in uh, a small little town called Newport, uh, which is in Lillishaw in Shropshire. So it's very, very quaint and very pretty. Um, and it hosts, it's our national training centre. So it hosts our our British athletes from wherever they might be based all around the UK. Um, we're a non-centralised system. So we run a squad system. So they come into us once or twice a month, um, which has been a little bit different during lockdown. But generally speaking, we have all of our athletes and all of our squads in one to two times a month. So am I right in saying that you are, you're based on the, in the Lillishaw Sports Campus there and there's gymnastics and a couple of other sports there that all have their high performance centres in the one place? Yeah, yeah. So we're a multi-sport centre. Um, us and uh, another site in the UK called Bisham Abbey, um, they do the same. So we have archery, we have hockey, uh, we have a lot of professional clubs, football clubs who, who use the site as well. Um, and then we have lots of visiting sports too. But um, Lillishaw is, our, is our, our main national training centre. So any activity related to national um, work and national preparation for, um, you know, any events that we've got coming up, everybody comes into Lillishaw for those. Sure, must be exciting place to work with all that going on. Uh, what about your job then? Tell us about your current role at British Gymnastics. What's the what's the job spec or what's the big picture of what you do with British Gymnastics? It's um, so the job I'm currently doing is probably it's a newish type of role in the British system. Um, I come from a group of people who would have traditionally been a sports science practitioner, um, but have moved into either strategic roles within UK sports. Um, or the English Institute of Sport, who provide the large amount of sports science support to our athletes, um, and working with national governing bodies. So, so I have a background as a practitioner, but now I'm more, I guess, managerial. Um, and I also work a lot on the operations side, so pulling together everything that the athletes and the coaches and the system need to prepare for our major championships. Okay, so what's the, what's the day-to-day reality of your job like then? It's a real mix. It's a real mix. I mean, obviously, we're very COVID uh, heavy at the moment. But, um, you know, I could be in a meeting in a morning where we are um, assessing what our current athletes um, need in order to remain at their training site. So we have a number of, I guess you'd call them training partners, but that's the clubs where our um, most senior athletes are based out of. So we work closely with those to make sure that the athletes have what they need back at their clubs. 
And then I might be in a sports science meeting where we review individuals. Um, so we w- might look at what they're doing, what competition they're preparing for, and therefore break down what do we need to help them to prepare for that competition. Um, and that would be each of the disciplines. Um, and then I might be in a majors planning meeting. So we've got a lot of um, majors, Europeans planned for the first half of 2021. So I'm starting to figure out now all of our locations, our hotels, um, what the room setup might look like, how we'll set up our dining space, will we bring our own nutritionists, that kind of thing. Um, and then I might do something as diverse as have a, a leotard design session with our our leotard designers, uh, which is interesting to say the least there's a lot of sparkle i never thought my job would include sparkle but it does That's all right i know when we were heading to uh, to london and to to beijing what the athletes were wearing that was a critical component they wanted their their kit to look good it's important it Happy athletes. Yeah. there's a lot of innovation that actually goes into it which you, you wouldn't necessarily think for a leotard but um the fabric the composition the layout of the stones um, all of that kind of contributes to how the the athletes look in their leotards um, and that contributes towards the aesthetics and that contributes towards scoring. So it all counts. Okay, there's stuff you wouldn't have picked up in college. <laughs> Definitely. So what do you think is the most, what, what do you enjoy about your job? What's the most interesting aspect of your job, do you think? Um, I think for me, having been a practitioner, so previously I was a physiologist and so been able to work on the front line with the athletes, contributing to their sort of day-to-day, doing their testing, working with their programs. I I loved all that. I really enjoyed being an applied practitioner. So my part of uh, the job now that allows me to do that is is working alongside the practitioners and the athletes to pull the service together. Um, you know, so I'm working with the coaches to see what do they think the athletes are going to need and, and what might that look like and then I'm working with the athletes to say this is what we're proposing you'll need do you disagree shall we add something else in what's your thoughts and then I'm working with the practitioners to say from a coach perspective we think we need this from an athlete perspective we need this what's your you know wh- where do you think we should go as a practitioner so really right now the thing I enjoy most is pulling together all of those those areas. Yeah, sounds like it's really hands-on. So even though you've left the applied side behind to a certain degree, you're still very hands-on in how that is administered uh, with, within the sport. That sounds really awesome. Uh, what I often I think of this myself when I, I was uh, uh, when I was working with in sport as a physiologist, uh, people got confused about what I did. My mother used to always just tell people that I was a physiotherapist, and it got to the stage where I used to just say, "Yeah." So, what is it that other people think that you do uh, in your job? Uh- you know what, Bruce? Same for me. Um, I think my mum still thinks I'm a physio, um, so <laughs> despite having never ever treated anybody for anything. Um, so I think right now it's 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 difficult to, for me to explain my job. It doesn't make a lot of sense to people. Um, so largely, um, I I explain that my role is now, I guess, head of operations. That that seems to be the one that sort of resonates with people they understand what operations mean so it includes logistics it includes planning um includes communication includes organization so you know i think that probably is the most encompassing piece um but i definitely think the biggest difference for me is that i understand the sports science side and so it's much easier for me to amalgamate all of those services um i'd say to some extent i'm almost a hybrid of um, a head of operations and a head of sports science that's that's probably 
the best way to describe it. And had, did you, in your career to date, did you kind of notice this? Was it a noticeable transition from the applied work to the kind of uh, management side of things? Or was it a gradual change that occurred with, with as you moved from job to job? Um, I think it was It was probably the biggest step change was one of my previous roles was with the, with the English Institute of Sport, where I was a performance pathway scientist, um, which previously, I guess the best way to describe it was, would have been a talent scientist. So um, the team that I worked with was responsible for running large um, talent identification campaigns and then helping sports to build a, a pathway that sits underneath their elite system because without the pathway, you don't have any athletes transitioning into elite systems. Um, and for me, that was the first time I really noticed a move away from applied physiology um for the first time at that point instead of being the team behind the team I started working as and this is like a bit of a mouthful but the team behind the team behind the team um, (laughs) because my role started to become more about supporting practitioners to understand what a performance pathway needed and supporting um athletes to understand why it was important to transition successfully so you know, I was working a lot more with coaches. I was working with governing bodies. I was working with UK sport, um, which is which is a step away from, you know, just being in the lab. Um, but at any point, I knew I could translate what I was doing at that point to the athletes and to the coaches because I understood why they were doing it. Okay. And what experiences do you think that you've developed uh, in your other positions that, that helped you to gain that understanding? So are there any standout jobs that you did or roles that you took on um, that, that helped you to progress in that direction? Um, I think for me, I, I was very heavily involved in, in applied lab work. Um, and I think for me, one of the biggest things that I learned was about actually being able to explain what those lab, lab results mean in a meaningful way. So, you know, I think in one of my first jobs when I worked at um, an institute in in North Wales, you know, I could write an epic lab report, you know, with with all of the bells and whistles that definitely would have got me, you know, a good mark at university. But when I put it in front of the rugby coach I was working with at the time, you know, he was like, this is practically Braille. I don't know what I'm looking at here, you know. So I think for me that was learning how to help um, coaches and practitioners interpret the data and I practiced that more and more as I went through each job so I worked um, at Liverpool John Moores University then as an applied sports scientist worked heavily with football and you know a lot of their coaches and a lot of their practitioners needed the data to be simplified so that we could make sense of it and make use of it um, so that was that was probably the biggest skill I, I took from being an applied physiologist was translating the data. Well, I feel like I have almost lined that that answer up without having actually done it because only last week I was working with some of our students on generating lab reports and taking the data from from the lab and turning it into something that's easily digestible by the coach and by the athlete and, you know, letting them know that depending on the coach, depending on the athlete, you may have to provide different levels of information to the athlete. It might be something as simple as a traffic light system to colour code the score or something a bit more complicated with a bit of education going along. So, uh, I'm delighted to hear you say that. That, that that's really interesting. Uh, what about your time at Liverpool? That's that's when you took on your PhD. Maybe you might tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think I might, like I say, my first job was at a very small education institute um, where I felt like I really learned my skills as a practitioner, 
And then I moved into Liverpool John Moores, which is a much bigger academic institution. Um, you know, it was every, it felt like every staff member had a PhD and it was sort of commonplace. Um, and as part of my progression, um, I was told I should look into, into a PhD as well. Um, and I wanted to do something that was meaningful. I didn't want to do it for a PhD's sake. Um, and so I was supported um, to do a PhD whilst I worked full time. Um, and that was really interesting because I had the choice to go mechanistic and very lab based. And I had the choice to go very applied um, and continue my work as a as a practitioner. So knowing that I really enjoyed the, the applied work, I actually chose to do an applied PhD. Um, and my PhD was in cardiac physiology, looking at ultra endurance um, athletes and the, and the impact of ultra endurance exercise on the heart, um, which was really interesting because I really feel like the topic right now, I don't apply in my job. I don't scan hearts anymore. You know, I don't do ECGs anymore. But all of the skills I gained planning all of those applied studies um, is actually what I'm using day to day now. So it, that definitely made a big difference. You know, I, I traveled the world with my PhD. Um, I worked with so many ultra endurance athletes, epic, epic athletes who, you know, did amazing things. Um, and so all of the skills I learned from that, you know, planning, organizing, delivery of studies out at, you know, crazy fields and all sorts of amazing, you know, experiences. Um, and then being able to bring that to life into a PhD and, and apply it. Um, that's the skill that I've taken largely from the PhDs. That's what I use every day now. Okay, so it sounds like the choice with the, for the PhD, you, you weighed up the pros and cons. You, you chose something that you're, well, I'd say your, your heart maybe wanted to do at the time, but now you've picked up all these transferable skills uh, that uh, are, are really applicable now. That's, uh, that's awesome. Um, you say there, you mentioned you got to work with loads of different athletes. Any, any major highlights there? Any, any, any ever been starstruck by an athlete that you've worked with? or um, what, any? I think... I mean, how my my um, opinion of athletes has changed over time is interesting. I think when I was at Liverpool John Moores, football was um, obviously a big group of athletes that we used to, to work with. Um, my dad is a diehard Everton fan, um, and one of our biggest clients was actually Liverpool. Um, and for a, <laughs> I know, shocking. And for a period of time, um, I was tasked with looking after Steven Gerrard, who, uh, who was actually super polite, um, I'm very interested in all of the information relating to his health, his fitness and what he could do to, to maintain, you know, his fitness for as long as possible to keep him in the game for as long as possible. Um, so I was often surprised at how interested a lot of the um, elite football players were in their health and fitness. It, it often seems from the television like they're, you know, they're not that interested and they kind of sit back and do as they're told. But actually, my experience told me that a lot of them were very keen to be a part of that process. Um, okay. You've also had the opportunity to work with a huge variety of sports over your careers. Are there any sports in particular that you enjoyed working with or any perhaps that you didn't like working with? Um, so I think for me, swimming was one that I really enjoyed working with. So I worked with um, English women for a period of time. Um, and that was in the run-up to uh, the London game. So a large number of the English swimmers were selected into the British squad um, who ended up competing at the games. Um, and that was really interesting because you have so many different disciplines and so many areas of physiology that can be applied and manipulated, um, you know, to meet the needs of those athletes. So 
I really enjoyed I really enjoyed working with those guys. That was really interesting in terms of getting into the physiology. Um, and then more recently, obviously, I'm working very closely with our athletes at, at British Gymnastics. And, and we have got, you know, some of the world's best gymnasts in the likes of Max Whitlock. We've got world champions in the likes of Joe Fraser. So, you know, I'm having a really, really good opportunity right now to see and work with athletes from a different perspective, not just from the physiology side, but from the whole athlete side. Um, you know, I feel like I do contribute to to their experience, um, which is which is a real feel good for, for me. Um, one, of, I, I put the opportunity out to some of our students to come in with questions that they'd like me to ask to you. So kind of related to what we're talking about there, um, one of our students asked, was gymnastics always your main sport of interest? And I, I know, obviously, you've worked with a huge variety of sports. And I, I think if I remember correctly, you were it was netball when we were back in university was your sport. So how if... Uh, how have you found moving from sport to sport? You know, a lot of our students would have their particular sport of interest that they're very focused in at the moment. But we can see from your career there that as you progress, you've moved around from sport to sport. You've experienced a whole lot. How do you find it moving from sport to sport? Is there a steep learning curve? Is it enjoyable? Is it stressful? I think in the early days, it probably did feel quite stressful. So, yeah, you're right. You know, at my my undergrad work and my master's work was with with netballers. Um, and then I took up the job at, at Wrexham and I worked with rugby. I worked with football. I worked with tennis, athletics. And then I moved into John Moore's again, multi-sport. And I think the more and more I moved, um, the more adaptable I became. And I think for me, that initial needs analysis of each sport was almost my literature review. Um, you know, so I just explored the needs of each of those um, sports before I committed to doing any programs of work with them. Um, and I, I reached out to people who I knew had experience, you know, a lot more experience than I did at the time in different sports to understand where they felt, you know, were the definite areas for work on, where the areas of complication were and, you know, where it might be a bit more difficult to understand. Um, so, for example, uh, when I worked at English Institute of Sport, I took a secondment with British shooting, which at the time I, I really struggled to get my head around what were the performance needs of these athletes. Um, and it took me it took me really far into other disciplines, you know, like motor development, like um, psychology. You know, there was so many areas that I knew little about, but, you know, it just helped me to expand my knowledge, really. So it was always I always felt like it was a learning opportunity. And do you think that adaptability has stood to you now as you've progressed through your career? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I work in a sport where they are very traditional. And one of the hardest things I've had to do at gymnastics is get acceptance from coaches and um, athletes around. I do have a skill set that can help them. Um, so even though I haven't come from gymnastics traditionally, I do. I can add value to their system and I can add value to them. So um, and I've been able to demonstrate that through lots of different you know examples with other sports uh okay so any what about any, if you've mentioned challenges there any other challenges that you've come across in, in any of the other jobs that you've had um i think some of the sports and you know gymnastics is one of them judo is another they're very traditional sports so opening their mind to different ways of doing things um can be a challenge you know breaking the the kudos of what they've always done um, and trying something new and I guess for me 
the skill set in that isn't necessarily about being a sports scientist. It's about being a good communicator. It's about uh, being able to empathize with why they feel the way they do and come up with ideas, thoughts, um, activities that might just nudge them slowly into a different way of thinking. So um, me having a growth mindset and sharing that with them is is something that I think has been really valuable. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's also very important, being, having that growth mindset and realizing that there's opportunities to change and, and learn and, and, and get things from every scenario that you're in is a, is a really important trait to have. Okay, so maybe there. You, what about uh, any any career highs? Uh, any anything that's really stood out for you has been uh, the high points of your career so far. Um, so interestingly, one of them is completely separate from high performance sport. So I've always wanted to work in high performance sport, and I love working in it. But actually, one of the things that I'm most proud of is um, in my role at the University of Surrey. I ran a human performance lab. Um, And a part of that was actually to set up a a clinical component, so clinical exercise testing. Um, And so what I I learned from that role was actually a completely different group of people to work with were patients. And so one of my career highs is setting up a a clinical exercise testing unit at a a hospital, which supported um, cancer care. And, you know, whilst it's amazing to see and be a part of high performance athlete journeys, knowing that actually you've contributed to a patient, you know, not staying in um, a high dependency unit or intensive care and getting home to their family sooner than they might have done if you hadn't have contributed. That's like, that is, that's a really big thing. I just, I'm really grateful for the opportunity I had to do that. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's really meaningful. And it's so impactful for the, for the patient and their family that you, you know, you, your, your sports science skills can transfer over into that area as well. That's unbelievable. I didn't realize you'd done that. <laughs> so that, that's probably, you know, and in sport, I would say it's our most recent world championships. Um, you know, we, British Gymnastics had their best ever world championships uh, last October. We qualified men's and women's teams for the Olympics. Um, we took uh, world championship medals. You know, we, we did everything that we, and we, you know, exceeded what we thought we could achieve which in the year before a games which clearly didn't happen in the end but um, at the time that's such an epic place to be knowing that you are you know some of the best in the world going into the biggest competition um, in the world so okay well that's actually a nice little transition into my next line of questions I guess so what lets you know we, obviously, if your athletes are winning, they're winning medals. They're they're doing well at competitions. What lets you know that you're winning at your job? Um, I think for me, it's it is more about the the feeling I get. So when I go into the gym, um, oftentimes when I go in, I I will walk around and I'll have a a bit of a chat and catch up with the athletes and the coaches. You know, whilst they're whilst they're training, um, and when I feel like they're happy with you know, their environment, when I feel like they're happy with their services, when I can see that they're progressing and they're happy as people, um, that sort of makes me feel like I'm doing something right. You know, when when we have prepped for a competition really well and, you know, we've considered every aspect for every individual, um, it, it kind of shows because they get there and they're relaxed and, you know, the stress is minimum. So when stress is low, despite going into really high pressured environments, I know something's going okay. Great, great. And then 
Uh, are there any metrics that you have to meet? Are you under pressure to hit certain targets then? Is that the reality of your job as well? It is, yeah. So I think, um, you know, this sense of chasing medals and what have you, but actually previously that's how we've been funded. So every sport has a medal target for the Olympic Games. Um, now, the Olympic Games happens once every four years. So in the interim, we have to nominate major championships, which are usually are Europeans, usually world championships. And we have to say, we think we will get this, you know, this many medals, um, this many men's medal, this many women's medals. Um, and this is how we think we'll do it. So those are the metrics we're held accountable to year on year. And if we fall short of those, um, we open ourselves up um, for to be checked and challenged, really, to understand if we didn't deliver those medals, how can we guarantee the following year we will? And, you know, it's a build, isn't it? So you're building towards the biggest point, which is the Olympics. Um, and I know that in, related to that, then part of your job as well to ensure it, it, that there's performance pathways to try and increase, broaden the base of the triangle there so that you're getting uh, enough athletes up to the higher levels. So does that count towards it or is it, is it simply just performance targets at the end? No, I think when I first joined the performance system, it was largely about the medals. But in the last four years and certainly preparing the strategy for the next cycle, we're now being asked for a lot more information around how we support athletes and systems. So, you know, what what will we be putting in place much further down the pathway? So 12 years out from, from a medal, um, which for some of our athletes makes them four years old. You know, so it's it's impossible to some extent, you know, all we can do is make sure that when they do enter the high performance system, that they're looked after um, in a way that, supports them as a person we've definitely um, moved towards a better cultural awareness of um, helping people to manage high performance sport and a normal life Um, so performance lifestyle is really important so a lot of our work has gone into helping young athletes to manage school manage training um, to manage the pressure of you know doing GCSEs as well as preparing for a world championships that kind of thing Um, and also a lot of relationship building. So helping, um, you know, coaches who work with athletes to have better relationships with parents and, um, you know, meeting the needs of the athletes more. So we, we do have to provide evidence now more than we ever have about how we're going to do that or how we have done it. Great. Well, hopefully that'll, you know, that'll pay off in, in, in terms of medals as well, because as you said, you've got athletes with lower stress levels running into competitions, ready to perform. Um, with the yeah, you mentioned there you're, with the uh, the Olympics being postponed, so how how has that affected your systems at the moment? Is it just a matter of changing the dates on your documents, or has everything had to change around that? Um, it's interesting because you know we we have um, age eligible athletes. That's for the Olympics. That's how how it works. And so pushing the games back by a year made a lot of athletes who wouldn't have been in contention for selection purely on age now available for selection so we hadn't picked our team before we went into lockdown and before the games were postponed so it's blown it open really um there's a few youngsters who we know have lots of potential who now have an extra year to to build and show that they can be selected and they can go to a games um and we also have a lot of athletes who were accepting that this was probably their last games and you know they we're reaching peak and in a sport like gymnastics, which is so technical and so risky, 
um, having to wait an extra year has been a real challenge for some. You know, the honest truth is some of them have been held together with prayers and tape. And so, you know, on the basis of we only got to keep going at this for another couple of months and then we'll be at the games. And now they've had to have a real think about, can I sustain the level of training I need for another year? And not add add to that, they've got to go to major champs again. They've got to earn their place again. Um, You know, so so that's been a lot of pressure and stress for some of our most senior athletes. Um, But it's also given them, you know, knowing that people are chasing them, they've got the motivation now to to kind of make sure that they secure a place for the games themselves. So we've, we've got a real brilliant group of athletes who are all chasing the opportunity now um so it's it's great that we have a bigger selection of athletes available for selection than places available that's always the way you want it to be um, so how does that work now just for for people who might be familiar with it how does it work then do you qualify individual athletes do you get qualify a team size how how do those things work for you so the we did qualify a team at the world champs last year for men's and women's now those aren't named places that's that's an unnamed place so we can select so it doesn't matter who qualified the place at the time they're not guaranteed to go to the games um so largely that's the space that's wide open and then we have individual apparatus um spaces so if you go through um the qualification period um and you win. So, for uh, as an example, if Max Whitlock went and world um, won the world championship and went to the World Cups and won all of those, he he wins his own place. Nobody can take that from him. He, he earned it himself. Um, so we do have some named individual places, one or two, and then we have four or five unnamed places. Um, so those are the ones that are that are open and and ready to fight for. Realistically, it's not. It's not impossible for the team who qualified the Olympic place for none of them to go to the Games. That's not impossible. It's unlikely, but it's not impossible. And behind the scenes then, does the team size influence the size of the support crew that you can bring with you? Yeah. Or do you- I mean, this for me, moving into a governing body role and helping to prepare for an Olympic Games has been a real eye-opener because as an applied practitioner, I went through my early career with this feeling of I I feel like I've made it when I've got to a games when I get the opportunity to go out and work as a practitioner at the games but now that I'm on the side where I'm preparing for a games the number of spaces available you know is is so so small um the reality is for every every two athletes that qualifies you know we're proposing taking one member of staff now we're only taking realistically 12 to 13 athletes so realistically, we should only be taking six members of staff. And because of the nature of the sport that we do, we have to take a doctor. We've been told we have to do that. We have to take physios. So suddenly you've got all these personal coaches who've worked for many, many years with these athletes who all feel like they deserve to be at the games with their athletes too. And we don't have, it's not a choice from us. It's, you know, it's the Olympic Association who are saying, actually, we can't give you all them spaces. So pick and choose wisely. Um, so that's that's been really really interesting to see how that dynamic changes um, because for the other major championships world championships euros we take every personal coach we take you know two or three physios nutritionists psychology we take the whole you know whole shebang everybody's there um, but that isn't how it works for the olympics it's a much much smaller tight-knit group 
Um, so part of our work is actually to prepare the athletes and the coaches to know that for the biggest competition of, of the cycle, you might not be there. You might you, you Your job then is to prepare the athlete knowing that you might not be there with them when you feel it really counts. Yeah, really highlights the, the less glamorous side of things behind the scenes. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and also, interestingly, I think at the major championships, how everybody chips in to get everything done, you know, I think on paper being a head of performance programs sounds somewhat glamorous and, and, and really interesting, but the, the reality of it, you know, having an operations role at a major champs means I'm responsible for running to the shop for chocolate milk and I'm responsible for making sure that when they get off the bus, their baths are full of ice. And, you know, so I get into the nitty gritty stuff and I do the real stuff that, you know, just make sure that dining rooms are set up and there's, you know, whatever they need so they don't have to think about it. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a lot of unsexy stuff that happens, but just keeps everything ticking over. Yeah, yeah. There's a real need to be able to muck in in these situations and just, you know, whatever needs to be done, load the bus, go to the shops, empty the bins, just do it. doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Makes all the difference. And, it, you know, you just, you build camaraderie and teamship in that as well. Yeah, it takes the hierarchy out of us. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Okay, um, uh, leaving that behind, maybe just a couple of general questions. What advice would uh, would 2020 Karen give to 2010 Karen? <laughs> to 2010 Karen, where was I in 2010? Uh, I was at Liverpool John Moores in 2010. Um, I think for me, um, it is about being able to look wider than um, your space. Your, you know, my space at the time was physiology. Um, and I didn't, I don't think in 2010, I was very good in a multidisciplinary team because I couldn't quite get my head around everybody else's role. And not because I wasn't capable, because I just wasn't interested. I was so into my discipline. Um, and I often felt like, you know, mine was most important, but then other practitioners at the time all felt the same. So you have quite siloed approaches to, to, um, to some work um, and I think the older I've got and the more experienced I've got taking the complicated and difficult stuff out simplifying understanding what really really needs to be done um, is is a really really important thing that I learnt. Um, and certainly now working with sports science teams like I do I'm constantly asking our sports science team like is that necessary is that the thing that's going to make the biggest difference because I would rather you worked on really simple, for example, physiology, but that has a really big impact than crazy innovative practices that may or may not show themselves to be useful. Um, so keep it simple, but keep it effective. That's yeah, don't get distracted by the bright and shiny things. Sure. Just do the basics well. Yeah, brilliant basics. With, and that's a term we use at gymnastics a lot, brilliant basics. Um, as long as our brilliant basics are covered, then we can look to expand into innovation after that. Okay. Um, so another question I had that was asked by one of our students is, do you recommend becoming BASIS accredited? And if you have this, how long did that process take you? Yeah, so I am BASIS accredited. So even though I am uh, classed as management, it's something I've always committed to staying because it keeps me connected to um, being a sports scientist and, and the sports science field. Um, I became first became accredited in I think it must have been about 2008 
Um, I should probably, sorry, I should probably clarify for some people that BASE's accreditation is the British Association of Sport and Exercise Scientists, and they uh, will accreditate, accredit labs and practitioners to say this person is suitably qualified to work in sport. So that's that's what we're referring to here. Sorry. Yeah, and there's, there's two sides to that as well. There's a pedagogic side so that you can contribute to teaching and research. Um, and then there's also the applied side. So um, being able to work as an applied practitioner. Um, and at various points, so when I was when I first became accredited, it took me it took me about two years to do, um, and I had to write up my case studies. Um, so every athlete and every group I worked with, I captured the journey, and a big part of that was reflective practice, being able to understand what did I learn from each person I worked with. Um, you know, not just could I write a lab report, but actually how did I influence what they did with that information. Um, and so since then, I've always remained accredited. I've always worked and captured all of my, my activity. Um, and it's a bit more challenging now because I'm not responsible for writing the lab reports and I'm not responsible for pulling that information together. But I am responsible for making sure that those practitioners do that effectively. Um, so it's different, but, you know, I still, I still work at that. You would you'd recommend keeping a, a log of all the work you're doing, why you're doing it? For sure. Is there any- any other advice that you give to current students who are trying to figure out where they might go with their career? You know, there's there's a feeling at the moment in the system. I think, Bruce, when you and I did our undergraduate and our master's degrees, we were moving into the space of becoming discipline specific um, and experts in one area. Um, you know, when we first started our undergraduate degree, um, you know, S&C wasn't a discipline of its own. It sat inside physiology. You know, things there was there was three I guess, main disciplines. And then as we progress through our undergraduate degree into our master's and on from there, there are so many specialist fields now. And, I, you know, my opinion, and I'm seeing it, and I'm about to, to look into doing it within British gymnastics, is the rise of the generalist again. Um, I remember going for a job at British Triathlon and not getting it because the feedback was, I was too much of a generalist. I'd worked multi-sport too much and I didn't have the expertise in one sport. Um, And then, you know, four years later, I was appointed into the English Institute of Sport on the basis that I was multi-sport and I was a generalist. Um, So, and I think we are now moving towards this sense of being a generalist, having a broad understanding of a lot of areas where you can contribute to more than just one specific discipline, where you understand and can work with other disciplines because you are a bit more of a generalist. Okay, so why then leading on from that, when a CV, well, do CVs land on your desk? And if a CV lands on your desk, what would you be looking for from from someone? Um, I think, you know, so the, the CVs go... For, certainly for sports science practitioners, they do go into the English Institute of Sport. Um, but we do get to look over them because they're effectively um, working with the national governing body. And so we play a role in, in employing those people. And for me, it's about um, not necessarily the in-depth detail of what tests can you do and you know what, um, what are the technical skills you have. Those are important. Um, But in the CV, I like to be able to see where somebody has contributed to the system as part of something bigger. So where can they show teamwork? Where can they show in their CV that they've contributed through communication, through organisation? 
Um, so it's it's about showing, you know, not just technical skill, but adaptability and and growth mindset. Okay, really good. I think we've covered an awful lot of bases there, Karen. I've probably taken up enough of your time. So we might finish it there. I just want to say thank you very much. That's been a really interesting conversation. I think it's going to be useful. There's some real good nuggets of information there for our students. Fantastic to hear um, about what goes on behind the scenes and your experience and, and very, very much so your perspective on things. I think that's going to be really, really valuable. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me on. It's always good to chat. I love sharing, you know, what real sport is like. Very good. Well, you never know. I might come, come back and check in with you after Tokyo and uh, see how things are going then. Yeah, for sure. It'll be good to chat then. Okay. Thank you very much, Karen. Take care.